Things have changed so much over the last 80 years of a change in the way that we consider male and female relationships, of immigration into the country. All sorts of things have changed, and many of them by far for the better. But back in 1938, by and large, we knew that we were a Christian country. If you lived here, you were default Christian, probably Church of England. Even if you weren't sure what a Christian was, you were at least Church of England. <laughs> and, and there would be a sort of a security blanket to that. It would have been shaken by World War I and the atrocities that were done there, uh, but it would still be fairly secure. And now we live in a very, very different era. If you clock the last few decades of our, of our culture and our life, that you would have had the first ever teenagers in the 1950s. Anyone here a teenager in the 50s? You don't have to give away your, your age. But it's really interesting that as some of our now older people in our country uh, grew up as 1950s teenagers, we no longer have old people the way we used to have old people. There's a, there's a whole different thing. People who grew up with pop culture are now filling out some of our, our older residential homes. They're not old in the way that their parents were old. It's a very different thing that's happened. The 60s saw the rise of permissive sex, um, sleep with anyone, drugs taking, all that sort of thing. The 70s saw punk rock. The 80s saw a bizarre reaction and a desire to own property and get as rich as you can quickly. And then the children of the 80s were like, oh, what was that all about? <laughs> You're all divorced, broken, and hurting. Um, uh, maybe we'll do something else with our lives as well. And then, of course, we've had the, uh, the crashes financially and the sense that the richest generation who ever lived probably are the ones who are now in their mid-50s through to mid-60s and the rest of us sort of struggling to catch up behind with property ownership really difficult. Cultures change fast, hasn't it? Different generations together, and you may or may not agree with all that um, just blasé analysis of it. But it is interesting to locate ourselves and say, crikey, what a seismic shift has happened in our culture. And if you come to here from overseas and you'd walked into uh, England and maybe from a country which had become quite a Christian country in the last hundred years or so and came over here, you might be absolutely shocked to see what had happened to the culture here. I thought this was a Christian country, you might say. This is the country that gave us the gospel. And yet when I come here, I see lower church attendance than I was thought. I see schools teaching all sorts of things that I didn't think were right. I see a whole load of things going on, and there's this drugs, and there's all this sort of stuff. What's happened to you? And we're a bit like the frog in the water. The water gets hotter and hotter. And you're not quite sure when you jump out of it, and then suddenly it's all sort of burning up around you. And you're like, ah, maybe we're in exile from what we used to know, from what we used to love, and from what we thought was absolutely right. Now that, I'm going to be arguing, is the experience of the guys who were saying this psalm, this incredible psalm. This is a psalm that Nicka and I had at our wedding um, quite a long time ago, um, back in 2003, 15 years ago. Amazing, she's still with me. God bless her. Um, and if you just look with me down at page 581, Psalm 67, you'll see that this psalm is gloriously short, which is one of the reasons I've chosen it. Um, it's easier to analyze. And it also has this lovely little pattern to it. If you look at verse 1, 
and at verse 7, they're basically the same thing. And then if you look at verse 2, about God's ways being known on earth and salvation among all nations, it sort of mirrors this lovely sense um, that uh, the, the lamb will yield its harvest and God our God will bless us in verse 6. Verses 3 and 5 relate to each other almost identically. May the peoples praise you, O God. May all the peoples praise you. May the peoples praise you, O God. May all the peoples praise you. And there, in the very heart of it, is this extraordinary verse, verse 4. May the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you rule the people justly and guide the nations of the earth. In other words, in the way this psalm is put together, the middle verse is the most important one. It sort of crescendos into the middle. And this is a way that many of the psalms are written. And you look at it. If you know anything about uh, Christianity or the Hebrew Bible, or even if you watched the royal wedding recently, you might recognize the way it begins. Um, I am now going to insult your ears. Lord bless you and keep you. Anyone? You don't have to recognize that. That's John Rutter from the royal wedding. Lord make his face to shine upon you. (laughs) Okay, that's why I don't sing in the choir. Um, But this is the thing that we sing again and again. Where does it come from? It comes from way back in the Old Testament. If you were to go back all the way to the Columbus, you'd find that these are words that God gives to a man called Aaron. Aaron is this like right-hand man to Moses. You remember the, the prince of Egypt, Moses, the mighty deliverer from the land of Egypt, the one who goes, let my people go, if you're old enough to remember the film. Aaron's his right-hand man. And God says to him, look, you are my instrument of blessing, Aaron, and you are to say to the people, may the Lord bless you, may the Lord keep you, may the Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. And what is really extraordinary about the way that he is to give that blessing is that the blessing uh, is spoken by the priest, it's spoken out by the priest, but it is God, in verse 27, who is the one who does the blessing. The priest just says the words, and then the Lord says this, thus the priest shall put my name on the sons of Israel, but I am the one who will bless them. In other words, there's a God out there who wants to do more than just see fingers crossed, touching wood, and a reaction to a sneeze. He actually wants to bless you. He wants to pour goodness into you and into the children that we've had uh, baptized today. God's intention for his people is to bless them. And blessing them means a qualitative difference in their lives. It changes things. It transforms things. It changes their, their destiny, their current, present And what they see is the legacy of their past. It transforms things for them, and God is the blesser. When we get to this verse, you'll see it's an echo of Numbers, of Numbers 6, 24 to 26, but it puts it in a different order. May God be gracious to us, not you, and bless us, and make his face shine upon us. It's echoing what they knew back in the day but it's been reworked. And there's a reason why it's been reworked. And to get to that reason, I want to take you down to verse 6. Then the land will yield its harvest, and God our God will bless us. Now the tenses of this verse are entirely up for grabs. If you look through five different translations, you'll see that different people translate this in different ways. The land has yielded its harvest, and God has blessed us. Uh, The land will yield its harvest, and God will bless us. The land has yielded the harvest, and God will bless us. All these different things. And one of the jobs to do is to try and work out when this psalm was written and why, 
so that you know how to translate that verse. And it's absolutely critical. And it's blown my mind as I've looked into it this week. Because suddenly from a nice psalm of God blessing people, I've discovered something that gives me absolute hope for the context that I was describing at the beginning of this talk. Because if you know the history of the people of Israel, there is a time when it says that the, ya- the land will yield its harvest. And then there's another time when it says the land will yield its harvest. And they're separated by centuries. The first time takes you back into the law, into the Old Testament laws. And in the Old Testament laws, in the Torah, particularly in Leviticus 25 and 26 and Deuteronomy 11, referring to the year of Jubilee, it says when you do the things that you are supposed to do, when you as a nation stay faithful to God and obey his ways, then the land will yield its harvest, yeah? And I wonder if you grew up in that sort of culture, (laughs) Um, like I sometimes impose on our children, you know. If you go upstairs, do your teeth, if you uh, get a good school report, if you, then I'll let you stay up and watch The Voice. Uh, Kids uh, is on until really late every day this week. Exhausted children as a result. If you do this, then I will do this. And that's how the Bible story starts. And it's where many people think the Bible story finishes. If you try really hard, then I'm going to bless you. And actually, the Bible story then spreads from that time of the law down the centuries. And guess what happens? Friends, it's the same thing that happened to you when you tried to do what your mum or dad or carer told you to do. You get it right sometimes. But as soon as they gave you the law, there was something in you that was like, I ain't going there anymore. (laughs) I I can remember like literally walking out the door ready to do some chore. And then I hear a voice behind me saying, put the bins out. And like, I am no longer doing that chore (laughs) because I've been told to. That was last week. (laughs) There's something in us that reacts against being told to do something. We're rebels by nature. It's part of the human condition. And so the law says, if you do this, that, and that, then the land will yield its harvest. Great, except not so great, because I ain't so good at doing what's right and wrong. But there's a second place in the scriptures where it again says the land will yield its harvest comes towards the end of the Old Testament in the book of Ezekiel 34 and in the book of Zechariah and in Psalm 85. And these are people talking to people after they've failed to keep the law so badly for centuries that they have been put in exile in another land. They're no longer where they have been. They're no longer where the temple is. They're no longer where the glory was. They are no longer where they knew what they were about, where they knew that it was just Israel against the world. Like maybe we were in 1938. We knew who men and women were. We knew how things were supposed to work. We knew our place. We had our sense of social class and hierarchy. We knew that Britannia ruled the waves and would never be slaves. We knew these things. But there's been a cultural and religious exile for 80 years for us. These guys were invaded by a superpower, which if you were to cross the leadership of uh, Saddam Hussein 
with the might of America's military force, with the absolute power of a China or an India, stick all those together into one despotic ruler, you'd have the sort of kings who conquered the people of Israel and their diddy little country and took them far away into exile. And heroes like Daniel, who we're going to study next term, existed there and were threatened by lion's dens and were threatened by statues and being burnt in furnaces. And they stood firm to God. But a lot of people wavered. A lot of people didn't know who they were anymore. And when they were given a chance to go home after 70 years, they were going back to a barren land. A land where they weren't sure if they could make themselves themselves again. Where they weren't sure what their identity was anymore. They didn't know what they were about. And they'd also been exposed to all the other nations of the world by being in exile. And some of the things they learned in exile were better than what they knew already. They were exposed to other ways of thinking, other cultures, other ideas. And instead of it just being Israel against the world, now they're coming back and hoping that the prophets were right, that the land would yield its harvest. And do you know what happened? The land yielded its harvest. Out of exile they came, and glimmers of hope happened. I don't know how you see the world around us today, whether you see it as gloom and doom for uh, morality or Christianity or anything like that. I see uh, incredible hunger for true reality. I see a real hunger for someone who will speak truth in love. I see an absolute sort of abomination of uh, what people see in the political world. You know, I don't know if you heard Barack Obama speaking recently saying, politicians have always lied, but they used to be ashamed of lying when they were caught out. There's a sort of sense that we deserve better than this, isn't there? That's rising up within us. And yet we know that if we were to just subscribe to the exile story, the exile story that we're all just overgrown amoebas, and that nothing really counts for at all, that we're just dying and then when we die that's it there's no destiny there's no eternity there's nothing if we were just to subscribe to that it's a dog eat world dog world why shouldn't you lie to get ahead why shouldn't you cheat to get ahead why shouldn't you have affairs and embezzle funds and all this sort of thing you've got to look out for yourself there's no restraint no morality no nothing but i don't think people buy that deep down i was um browsing online and came across an article in The Guardian. It was post-millennial generation more tolerant of Christianity. Extraordinary uh, article. Half of 18 to 24-year-olds in UK have more positive attitudes to religion than their predecessors. Something turning. I was watching The Voice last night and I was struck by how many of the kids performing on it are from clearly Christian homes. And uh, this little character, Harry, um, were singing Stormzy's Blinded by Your Grace, are rapping along. And he was like giving a full-blown worship concert on live ITV at nine o'clock on a Saturday evening. And then the girl coming after him who had grown up in a church choir singing her heart out. 
And you can see in these young lives a sort of a hunger for reality, a hunger for something more true, more tangible than just, you've just got to get good grades at school and hopefully you'll not ever be able to get a mortgage because your parents have already used the money up, but sorry about that, but try harder anyway, stress yourselves out, kids, along the way. That doesn't feel like the right destiny for our country, does it? That maybe there's an older story that might come back again somehow. And as these guys went back to Israel at the end of the exile, they had this hope that the land would yield the harvest. And they put the plants down the first year, and they tried to build walls to protect it, and it was tough, and you can read about that in Nehemiah and Ezra. It was hard ground to earn. You might think of the, the ancient Americans going west and trying to get their wagons and trying to secure something for themselves. It was hard. They didn't know if they would survive or starve. And looking at our culture, you can't honestly say whether all that is good will survive or starve in a world where politicians are allowed to lie their heads off and we're not sure where we're going, where we don't have a moral compass. But yet, we live with a legacy of good seed and a good God who has blessed this land before and blessed his people before. And these guys, when they went home, saw a land yielding its harvest, past tense, I believe, and then say future tense and present continuous tense. And our God, our God will bless us. But it's not just about them anymore. They've lived outside the comfort of their square walls. And the centerpiece of this psalm is verse 4. And this may apply to you if you found yourself stumbling in here and you don't know anything about God really. And you kind of trying to work out when I'm going to shut up, which is about three or four minutes time. And he's trying to work out why your friends have had the child baptized or why your spouse or your parents dragged you into church this morning. Or you've just picked it up online on our podcast and you're listening, you're thinking, oh, I'm not all in on this, but is there anything about God that works for me? Well, verse four is critical because their vision has expanded. They're asking frames in verse 3 and 5 for the peoples to praise you, O God, all the peoples praise you. May the nations, the world, be glad and sing for joy. For you rule the people justly and guide the nations of the earth. When God's kingdom is here, when God's rules are allowed to reign, when the way God wants it to be is the way it is, peoples praise God. There is blessing for all the nations. There is hope for everyone. God's ways are not just for a select few, but for how we live in our workplaces, how we do education, how we do healthcare, how we do politics. And whether you're in all the way or just looking in from the outside, there are things in here that have defined all that is good in this land. And that are great things to find again if you're trying to find a moral compass for the future that can bring blessings to the nations and hope to this world. So I commend it to you, exile people. What if we look back into our history? What if we did what the history undergraduates got to do? Read the words. What if we found out what, to coin the phrase in a popular program, our words are? Again, these, these are our words. 
Let's get back into them and discover a way of existing that made this place wonderful and can make it wonderful again. And God bless you today.